Uh, we're going to actually be considering three primary principles as we move into Romans chapter 9. Now, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 um, are, are complicated chapters and, and deeply debated chapters um, because Paul now moves from what we've been exploring for, I mean, we started Romans almost two years ago, uh, and we, we've been looking over the last eight chapters at theology. We've been considering the, the heart of what the gospel is and how it plays out in our lives. And that's what he's going to move into in chapter 12 to the close of the book is all practical, um, the practical outworking of the gospel. But 9 through 11 are these three mysterious chapters that were absolutely necessary for Paul to include because they address a question that was burning in the minds of the early church, which was those Jewish Christians, those Jewish believers that had, that had come out of Judaism into Christianity were intermingled with Gentile believers who did not have the Jewish heritage. And the question that was burning in the minds of those Jewish listeners, those Jewish Christians, is what about God's promises to the Jewish people? What about God's covenantal promises with Israel? How does that work in the context of the gospel? What does faith in Jesus and life in Christ and new creation, how does that connect with law, with covenant, with the nation of Israel? And so Paul begins to address these questions, but within them, uh, there are many things that are so essential for us to understand the gospel because he never loses sight of the gospel. And I think that there is much that we can draw out of this regardless of the context around in the debates around is God finished with Israel or not. I think that the things that we can find within this text, there are universal truths that must be held tenaciously to. Uh, Chapter 10 has one of the most profound passages in the Bible on the necessity of evangelism. Uh, there are so many things within this text um, that, that speak to the mysteries of what it means to be the church, what it means to be followers of Christ, and what it means to be witnesses. And so today we're just going to look at the first five verses of chapter 9. And what we're going to see in these first five verses are three principles that are true for us today, and it is the principle of truth-telling, it is the principle of substitutionary love, and it is the principle of first and second things. And I want to just begin with the principle of truth-telling. Paul moves now into, into chapter 9, and he says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And he's getting ready to unfold for them his deep desire for his brethren, the Jewish people, to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. But I love this opening verse because it speaks to an, an, an essential principle of Christian living, and that is the necessity of truth-telling. Truth-telling is something that I think we, we all know that it's not healthy to lie. And yet, we speak lies, we believe lies, and we live in a culture full of lies. I think of Will Ferrell talking to the fake Santa 
in, uh, in Elf when he's like, you sit on, you smell, what do you say? Like you smell like meat and cheese and beer and you sit on a throne of lies. <laughs> and, but the idea of truth telling is, is something that is so important in a culture that is, that is hell bent on hiding in dishonesty. And we are indoctrinated in that. In fact, the fundamental belief, I think, of most people is that if I was to be honest about what I was thinking, you wouldn't like me. You wouldn't love me. You wouldn't want to know me. And so we keep secrets and we tell lies. When I was in my early 20s, uh, I... (laughs) I remember I, I was, you know, I wanted to be a rock star. I moved to S- Seattle, and I had this kind of whole MO of, like, how to be a rock star. And the way to be a rock star is, A, don't let anyone get close to you so that you can maintain a certain level of mystique. And I was always struck by, you know, I went to shows every week, and I played shows every week. I would, if at all possible, not tell people where I worked because I didn't want them to know, because I was trying to be a rock star, which means you have to hold a certain elusiveness, and there needs to be mystery around you. And, and so, you know, I play the show in full makeup, looking like David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust, I mean, raccoon eyeliner and lipstick, and I wore glitter all over my face. I mean, I was, I was serious. I was a serious glam rocker. I had the mullet, everything. Um, but then I would go to work on Monday through Friday for Princess Cruises. <laughs> the love boat, literally the love boat. Um, and, uh, and I would sell cruises to travel agents uh, on the East Coast. Like literally, like I, I was responsible for all the kosher tours, like all these like elderly Jewish groups out of Florida. So I spent like most of Monday through Friday on the phone with eccentric like Jewish women booking tours for, for elderly people. Um, and, and I mean, that is not the picture of rock stardom, you know? And so, and, but I realized that this is what we were all doing. It was the games we were playing. It's why in your 20s you go out to the club and you can pretend you're someone that you're not. You can, you can pretend, you can live out the fantasy life. Um, but I love what David Zoll says. He said that we are being tortured by the fantasy self that we cannot become. And, and I think that there is a, a real truth in that. And it's so hard to be honest with ourselves. And it's so hard to be honest with others. One of the most devastating moments for me in my early 20s was actually seeing a band that changed my life um, with their record, The Benz. It was Radiohead. And I, I went and saw them in concert. It, um, and it was a really small concert. It was before they were, you know, one of the biggest bands in the world. And, and I saw that band. And I knew for the, for the first time I was confronted with the fact that I would never be that good. And I was only 22 years old, and it was devastating. I couldn't even enjoy the concert. They were so good, I actually wasn't able to enjoy it. And I found a bitterness come over me and a despair. And the next day, I woke up, I'm such an optimist, I basically convinced myself that I was just in a bad place that night, and that I actually would be better, eventually. Well, that's not true, and it was never going to happen. Uh, but it, it's this, the, the principle of truth-telling isn't just our ability to speak the truth to others, but it is the ability to live with a clear conscience. It's the ability to know that we're quick to admit when we're being dishonest. 
I think truth-telling is the supreme principle that I'm trying to apply to Door of Hope and to hopefully live out before you, which is just being honest with the fact that we are broken, lost people, that life is actually terminally impossible. And this is why we need Jesus. We don't need to present to the world an ideal that we ourselves can't keep. That's what's killing the church today, is that we live in a place in which we are trying to keep bored Christians entertained to help them avoid the nagging voice of conscience that we as preachers ourselves are also trying to avoid by presenting to the world an ideal that we ourselves can't keep and that Jesus isn't asking us to keep. What Jesus wants us to be is a people that lives honestly before the world. And if we were to be honest, we would say the only thing that separates the believer from the non-believer is that we, at this point in our journey, have said yes to God's yes, and those that are not believers have yet to say yes to his yes over their lives. But we're in the same position. We're just as lost. We're just as broken. And the healing and the sanctification that comes into our lives is not from us trying harder but it is living more surrendered. And I think that this is the, the power of the gospel. I, I was sharing this with the staff. We just got back from a staff retreat. It's like, the, I think that we put all this emphasis on doing better, trying to arrive. The, the, the call upon our lives is not to arrive, it's to surrender. The call upon our lives is not moral perfection, it's intimacy with the living king who lived the perfect life that you can't live and will never be able to live. The goal of our lives is not arriving, it's knowing. And I think speaking the truth is the ability to confess. That's why confession, I believe, is, is the heartbeat of real fellowship. It's the ability to be honest about our own brokenness. I'm sorry, my beard is messing with the microphone. And I'm going to bend it out a little bit. I, want, I said I wanted to grow my beard so thick that the microphone is just hidden inside it, like a little mystery. Where's this voice coming from? Um, so I love this. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. Speaking the truth is central to understanding the lies in which we give ourselves to, the false worship that often plagues our lives. Have you, um, have you guys ever read, it, it's actually frustrating, and I'm, I'm reluctant to quote it because he actually is one of my favorite authors of all time, and there's only one book by him that I haven't read, and it's David Foster Wallace. But for some reason, Christians love to quote from his final speech that he gave, a commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005 called This Is Water. And I always say, you have no right to ever quote from This Is Water unless you've read Infinite Jest. That's just like, it's just a rule. It's a little, little frustration. If you're a pastor and you've used This Is Water, read Infinite Jest first because it's offensive. Um, but there is this amazing thing he says in this commencement speech. And in his commencement speech, he's trying to tell these students what's going to actually bring them a meaningful life. And, and part of what I love about this speech is it's, it's actually Wallace at his most vulnerable. It was not long before he took his own life. But there is truth-telling in this that I think is so beautiful. And it's the ultimate kind of truth-telling, which is his willingness to admit 
that the things that we worship break our hearts. Listen to this, listen to this excerpt from it. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Hear that. The way that we can actually fight, this is actually an incredible Christian principle that Wallace, who there's a lot of questions around whether or not he did go to church. I want to believe that he was a believer. But one thing is for sure, he understood an essential principle. If we aren't honest about our own brokenness, around our own tendency to worship false things, we will be eaten alive by the world in which we live. He goes on to say, worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are the default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that's what you're doing. And I think that this is the challenge of deception, is that deception, unconfessed, sin, unconfessed, it's the exceeding sinfulness of sin. When we are not truth tellers, what happens is that we actually begin to believe the lies that we tell. We believe lies about ourselves. We believe lies about others. And our minds are unbelievable engines for deception because they're actually incredible creations of a God who has given us his image as a part of our very being, but that image is marred. It's not gone, but it is marred, which means that every arena of the, of the divine image-bearing reality of our lives has been infected by this thing called sin. And the only way that we can actually find victory over it is to continually recognize that that is the reality, but that reality falls secondary to the great reality of salvation and redemption that's found in Jesus. And so our principle of truth-telling is we are telling the truth about who we are apart from Christ so that people can see the beauty of who Jesus is. And that's what Paul is trying to do here. And I love this because notice he says, specifically, I am speaking the truth in what? In Christ. In Christ. I love it because Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, it says, rather speaking the truth in love which is essentially the same thing. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. 
He talks about speaking the truth to one another in love. That truth-telling is actually an essential part of, of actual Christian growth. Because it's not until we're able to be honest about our brokenness, about the things that keep us bound, about the lies that we believe, that, that we find freedom from those things. It's the ability to speak it out where it loses its power over you. That's why confession is catharsis. It's why sin leaves the body and salvation enters the soul and witness is proclaimed. All of it happens through the mouth. And I love here that Paul is proclaiming something. He's about to proclaim something. He wants them to know that there is no dishonesty. There's, not, there's, no, hype, there's no hyperbolic reality in what he's about to proclaim. Because what he's about to say seems outrageous and it's built on the second principle. But let me just first of all say around truth, Jesus himself said, if the Son of Man sets you free, you will be free. He says, he goes, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And he says, if the Son of Man sets you free, you will be free indeed. What does he say in John chapter 14, verse 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. For us as believers, truth is not a body of knowledge proclaimed or known. It's a person that is intimately known. It is the person of Jesus himself who is the essence, the ground of being. He is the ground of all being. He is the truth. And all truth is an immovable reality because it flows from him who is the truth. And this is a challenging thing in the age in which we live, in which truth has been turned upside down on its head. And feelings have replaced realities where our personal emotional state and how it makes us feel becomes the supreme truth for everything. This is why a Christian worldview is so important that we have to learn how to look at the world and its lies and its systems through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the scripture. It's why we should be a scripture-saturated people because we're told that God's word is the living word. It is truth because it points us to the one who is the author of all things. It's actually what helps us to develop a sacramental cast that gives us the ability to see the truth in things as well as the deception that is all around us. It allows us to sort out the beauty and the good from the things that are perverting the good all around us. This is why I think that it is essential when people come to me and they say, I'm really struggling in my faith. I don't feel very close to the Lord. You know, I, I, I feel like he's not really there. I'm struggling with doubt. Um, I'm, I'm feeling, you know, I'm struggling with this sin pattern. One of the first things I ask them is what their devotional life is like. And as you guys know, I am not a guy that likes to be prescriptive. I think that preaching should be descriptive, but I, I think it should never be prescriptive. And what I mean by that is, I should never tell you how I arrive at a thing because you are not me and I am not you. I present to you hopefully the truth of who Jesus is because I believe if we get our center right, the circumference will follow. <laughs> uh, the problem is that we too often, you just want, people want others to just tell them what to do. And I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm hopefully, we as a community are here to point you to who you should love. And that, is, and that is seen in, in how we worship our king and how we love one another. 
Truth-telling is wrapped up in the person of Jesus, and it cannot be separate. In a world that actually has eradicated the idea that there is truth, what's true for you is not true for me, and it's fine as long as you don't push that truth on me. But that's the problem in the age of tolerance, is that the, the preachers of tolerance are only tolerant of those that hold their vision of tolerance. And so instead of allowing for the, the possibility of multiple perspectives and ideas, we are actually growing into an increasingly intolerant society around the ability to hold the truth. In fact, if you want to know what is true today is that people reject truth. <laughs> they don't believe it. They don't believe, they don't believe it. It's a, and, and so it's constantly being debated because we are taught that our personal experience is actually the most important truth that you will ever know. And that is not a biblical vision. Let Jesus be the definer of truth, not your, not your emotions or your experience. Uh, and let your experience and your emotions actually be defined by the truth of who Jesus is. Because I'm not saying that we shouldn't be feeling people. We should feel deeply. God's pathos is, is alive and well throughout the scripture. He has created us in his image. And to feel, to love, to know, to experience is all a part of that. But it's to be built upon a foundation that is him himself. The principle of truth-telling is something that we have to understand. And let me just say this. It takes courage to be honest. It is not easy to come clean, to speak out the things that we think would cause people to not love us, to not like us. It takes courage to be honest about where we're at with Jesus and where we're at with one another. It takes courage to be honest about what we think about ourselves. And when God confronts us with those realities, um, we, we've got one or two options. We can either hide in the dark, which is the essence of what, what is the essence of the outcome of the first sin in the garden. And it continues to be the continual essence of sin, which is sin entered into the world. And the first thing our, parent, our first parents did was hide. And I think that the, that the world continues today to hide in the lies that it believes. This is why we must understand the principle of truth-telling. The second principle is the principle of substitutionary love. And Paul goes on to say this. This is what he's going to tell the truth about. He says, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed. Literally, he's saying, I wish that I could be an anathema and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, what Paul is saying, which is so fascinating because Paul was chased down and plagued by the Jews after his conversion to Christianity. And really, ultimately, the Jewish people were responsible for getting him executed by the Roman Empire um, because of what they viewed as a dangerous heresy he was spreading around Jesus being Israel's rightful Messiah. And yet Paul, as a person who is consistently tormented by the very people that he longed to see come into, into a saving knowledge of Jesus. And this shows the power of the gospel's ability when we build our lives on the truth of the gospel, when our lives are built around knowing Christ and intimacy with him. We cannot say we love him and not love our enemy. And man, if that doesn't challenge your idea of what Christianity is all about, um, I don't know what will because last year and a half 
has been a great revealer of how much hostility there is in the hearts of God's people who have, like the children of Israel, turned secondary things into first things. And I don't want to get ahead of myself because that's the final principle we're going to consider. But when we allow our political leanings to be the domineering, driving narrative of how we view those that do not hold our leanings, what does it create? Hostility. It creates anger. It creates hatred. When we allow our, our emotions, the empathy that we feel, I mean... How can we escape? How will we ever escape? Or should we escape? The horrific imagery of a man being crushed under the knee of another. How can we escape that imagery and not feel a desire for, for, for righteousness, for justice to prevail? And yet how quickly we forget that Jesus died for both the man who died and the man who kneeled on the man who died. That Jesus didn't love George Floyd more than he loved Derek Chauvin. That he died for both of them. That he died for both of them. And see, when our lives aren't built upon the truth of who Jesus is, it is revealed in how quickly we will turn on others. How quickly we have so little patience for those that do not hold to our vision of what truth is. And this shows us that we're not believing the truth. We are defining for ourselves what is right and wrong, which is the essence of the first sin in the garden. It's funny how there really is nothing new under the sun, isn't it? There really is nothing new under the sun. The temptation to be our own gods reigns as supreme today as it did thousands of years ago. And I think that this is the challenge that we find because the principle of substitutionary love tells us this, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the question is, is who is my neighbor? And my neighbor is anyone that is in front of me, beside me, next to me, behind me, at any given point, in any given day. Jesus says, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who hurt you. Let your life be poured out for those that come against you. This is why Jacques Ellul said one of the three signs of the church is not just to be salt, a preservative against evil, not just to be light, an illuminator of truth, but we are also to be sheep amongst wolves, which means that we are not to take the position of the wolf. We are not to be domineering in our beliefs. What we are is to be witnessing to the reality of Jesus by the willingness to lay our lives down for the good of those that actually hate us for what we believe. The problem is, is that people often hate us for the wrong reasons because we're not actually witnessing to the one who gave his life for the world. We're presenting a particular ideal in Christianity that makes us feel okay in the world which causes it to be a us against them sort of mentality. We don't do these bad things. They do those bad things. The church is a place to protect us from them. Listen, the, the only thing we really need protection from in the church is ourselves. The greatest enemy within the church is exactly that. It's within the church. It's not what those people out there can do to us. It's what we do to ourselves because we refuse to come into the light. 
You see, you can't escape the first principle, which is the principle of truth-telling, and move to the principle of, of substitutionary love. You can't have substitutionary love if you refuse to come into the light and let God reveal to you what you are apart from Jesus. That's why I think the great benefit of Darcy and I coming to faith late in life is that we knew what we were saved from. <laughs> I mean, there was no question. I knew what it was like to be dead, and then I knew what it was like to be alive. And I knew what it's like to, to, to live a life that was absolutely built upon what would make me happy versus the happiness that is found when I live fully for others. And listen, I'm still learning that truth. The 16 hours that Darcy and I did of marital counseling in Chicago revealed that I have not learned that truth fully. And there are many things about my life that I had kept in hiding until, I'm, until I was 48 years old and to speak them out in a counseling session and allow myself to weep over the brokenness of my own past in front of my wife and in front of this amazing man, Jake, who came and spoke to us about marriage over the summer, was one of those moments where I experienced a catharsis that I have not experienced in so long. I, we went to the Puget Sound and I'll, I just, I had this crazy moment. I'm such a restless person who does not know how to be still. Darcy always tells me I should get like be still tattooed on the palm of my hand. And I just tried tattooing the palm of my hand recently and it didn't, it obviously didn't do a very good job because it's not there anymore. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I, I, I was sitting at the Puget Sound and there was just a stillness and a calmness and I had no desire to be doing the next thing, whatever that next thing is. I just found myself looking at rocks on the beach. And I collected rocks for like two hours, little rocks, and they were beautiful. And I was struck with what I call a sacramental cast. I slowed down enough to live so in the moment that all I felt was gratitude and peace. I found peace, but the peace didn't just come out of nowhere, it came out of truth telling. It came out of confession. And that peace was followed by unbelievable love. Not love for self, but love for the other. Love for my wife, love for my children, love for you. And I think there's been times where I have wanted to jump ship so bad from this church because I can't bear the burden of being asked to love a people when I can't even be honest about the things that are breaking my heart. And there was something so powerful and obviously that ebbs and flows. There's joy in all of it. Even in the mixture of the last 12 and a half years, there were extremely unhealthy seasons for me. And there, were, there have been healthy seasons. The power is, is that obviously God has continued to work in spite of all of those things. I, I, the one thing I have always trusted is that if Jesus be lifted up, he will draw people to, to himself, regardless of what I'm personally feeling. But how much more powerful when we actually obey the command to lift Jesus up and it's actually aligned with what we actually feel and what we know to be true. I don't think we should fake it till we feel it. Have any of you ever been told to do that? That's what my first pastor told me to do. Just fake it till you feel it. I'm like, that's just not very inspiring. <laughs> Just pretend you love him and eventually you will. Like that does, I don't think that's how it works. I think Romans 8 is how it works. And the love of God will be poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit, which tells us that the love of God is a foreign flower 
planted in the soil of our hearts. It doesn't grow naturally in the human condition. It is something that is, that is supernaturally granted. And Paul's ability to love Israel in spite of its continual torment in his life, the Jewish people that were coming after him, wanting him dead, all he could think about was, how can I bring these people into the light of who Jesus is? And I want you to think about, he's getting, he says, what I'm about to say is not hyperbolic. And he actually says, I wish, I wish, if it was possible, I would give up my own salvation to know that these people would be saved. Now, I've never been willing to say that. But I think I would probably say that for my kids. So that tells me that there is a possibility in divine love that I have yet to come to that is available to us when we live surrendered and when we continually come into the light. That it's possible to get to the point where my heart breaks for the stranger on the street the way it breaks for my own kiddos. And, and, and isn't that really the sign of a maturity that many of us don't yet know? It's hard enough to love the people that we love. How much harder is it to love people that actually don't like you? That want nothing to do with you? Now, I'm an optimist, so Darcy always cracks up. Like, she's a, she's a justice person by nature. So we go to a restaurant and someone's rude to us, like a server. She wants to confront them in love, in truth, and let them know. In fact, many a times when the kids were little and we had something happen where there was someone that was really rude to us she, or there was bad service, she knew that I was so squeamish around the idea of, I don't care if someone gave me like, you know, a co cockroach in my salad, I'd probably just eat around it to avoid the conflict. <laughs> it, by the way, I actually did serve someone at FX McCrory's Steakhouse when I worked there at 20 years old, a salad that had a big cockroach in it. And I was horrified, but not as horrified as the owner. <laughs> um, but, but Darcy will be like, honey, you and the kids should go out to the car. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> She's awesome. If anyone needs anyone to be confrontational for you, just talk to Darcy. She, will, she, she sees red when something is unjust. But, I, I, but, but what about the ability to continue to press in? And one thing that Darcy pointed out to me is that she said, it's like when someone is mean to you, it, there, it drives you to an even over-the-top desire to win them over. It's like, I kind of view it always as a game. It's like, oh, no, no, no. You can't not like me. That's not right. We, let's try this again. And I just keep pressing in. No matter how mean they are, it's like I try to look for things to compliment. I try to talk with them. About, I, I always try to do this. Anytime I'm in London, I love talking with cabbies about the gospel. And because they, and, they always trip out that I'm a pastor. They're like, you, they always ask me, like, you're a vicar? And I'm like, I guess that's what I am. Um, and they're like, yeah, I thought you were a tattoo artist, or I thought you were a barber. <laughs> and, and then it's, oh, where are you from? I'm, from? I'm from Russia. I'm like, oh, man, I love Russia. I just look for the point of contact. I love Russian literature. Really? I've been to Russia five times. Where have you been? And if, they're, if they find I'm a pastor and they start to get, to get harsh, I just continue to just 
kindness. Isn't that what Paul tells us to do? It's, to pour, it's like pouring coals on the heads of our enemy when we show them love. But that is not intuitive, and it didn't come from me until I met Jesus. And it didn't come from me until I met Jesus in such a way that Jesus, by the light of the truth of who he is, revealed how unbelievably lost I am without him, which made it easy to love others because I know that I am no better. I never see myself as better than the person I'm talking because I know that I am absent. I always like to say, you're not a bigger failure than God already knows that you are. That's the beauty of, of a place where, where people can be honest about their brokenness. And what makes the gospel compelling is not our ability to hide behind a false spiritual bravado. No, it's our ability to humbly accept that we are saints because we are sinners who have been forgiven. I think some of you might actually be weirded out by how much I talk about radical grace and how much I talk about the reality of our sinful, our sinful selves as if I'm saying that it's not possible to improve. I'm just saying that improvement is not the goal. It's intimacy which brings improvement. And I think that it's not that I'm saying sin more that grace may abound. I'm saying accept the reality of the brokenness in which you find yourself, not only within yourself, but the world around you, and you will not be as horrified by that brokenness if you remember that it's there. Part of truth-telling is to remind yourself that the world is not going to get better before Jesus comes back. It's going to get worse. Truth-telling is accepting a thing for what it is, but continuing to live in hope in spite of that. And so this is the power of the gospel, and this is what the principle of substitutionary love is all about, is that the greatest joy you will find in life is when your life is poured out for the good of someone else. Last week, I had the opportunity for the first time to produce, um, you know, I've been executive producer on records for Deeper Well, and I wrote a record for Liz Vice, but I hadn't actually ever produced an album where it was like, I am there to help this person bring a record to life. Evan often does a lot of the producing on the Deeper Well records, and then when I do my records, I have someone else do it. But to be able to do it was a really big step for me because it was a time where it's like, it's not about my music. It's about how can I utilize the gifts that I have in my history as a musician to help someone else achieve something. And I think it's one of the most, the kid's name's Taylor Armstrong, and he's like family now. He stayed with Darce and I um, and, and, and Hattie and for almost seven days. And we just fell in love with him. And it just, it was so cool to be able to serve a young man who's living alone in San Clemente, um, who's from Canada and doesn't have any family, and to just be family for him, to live in a, give a substitutionary love. We are putting you first, Taylor. We, we, we're going to spend time with you. We're going to make you a priority while you're here. And the reward of making someone feel loved is greater than anything we get when we, when we strive for selfish recognition or to fulfill our desires. The reward I get when I put my daughter first rather than, in, rather than me hiding out in my little studio making music or writing my book or working on sermons, and how many times I have sacrificed my family 
um, for what I am doing, what I am prioritizing. But the beauty of substitutionary love is that we are humbling ourselves. Our vision of Jesus is so great that it actually diminishes our, our vision of self because all we can see are the people around us that are loved by God. That's what I want to grow into. That's what I want us to grow into as a church. Because if we actually loved each other the way that Jesus loves us, we would never feel the need to put the focus on self because we would be so well loved by the people around us. If everyone just loved the people the way that Jesus has given us the ability to do by his spirit, we wouldn't feel like our needs aren't being met. I don't want anyone to ever come into Door of Hope and feel like they are not welcome, that they are not loved. Even this, there are many people that come and say it wasn't welcoming, and there are people that come in and it looks like, I expect you to not approach me, so don't you approach me. I want you to look for those people, and I want you to approach them. I don't care if the person's like, I think they might kill me if I approach them. Approach them. Nobody should ever get through these doors or leave these doors without being, without being welcomed, without having their name spoken. But that happens too often at the church. I don't want that to happen anymore at Door of Hope. I want us to have the spirit of Paul, the principle of substitutionary love. It's putting the other first. It's the beauty of what we see Moses even doing with the children of Israel in Exodus 32. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. It's the supremacy of love. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Galatians 5.14, the law is fulfilled in one word, love. You shall love your neighbor. Colossians 3.14, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So beautiful. The principle of truth-telling, the principle of substitutionary love, putting the other, sacrificing self for the good of those around you, is the greatest joy that you will ever enter into. And many people rob themselves of that joy because they continue to put self first. Death of self is not the loss of identity. It's the reforming of identity into the image of what God intended you to be. Not the lies that the world speaks to you. The final principle is found here in verses 4 through 5. And it's the principle of first and second things. And it, and it connects all the way back to, to Romans chapter 3 verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew? He says here in 4 and 5, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I think about this. He, he lists off this, this list of things that were these privileges of this, this insignificant nation that God chooses from among the world to be conduits of his grace. Now, here is the thing that Paul's going to get into as we move deeper into Romans 9 over the next, next several weeks is that we're going to get into the, the logic of election. And what we need to remember is that here we are already seeing that he is going to say these are the things that were the privileges of Israel being God's chosen people, but the thing that they forgot is that he chose them that through them he would reach the world. They turned their election inward upon themselves and they gave up the law giver and replaced him with the law that was meant to create parameters by which they entered into intimacy with him. They were an adopted people. Exodus 4.22, God says to Moses, Tell Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. They, they experienced the glory of God. 
God literally guided them through the wilderness. Guided them through the wilderness. His manifest presence. Think about the scenes of Sinai where the glory of God appears and the children of Israel are terrified. They experienced miraculous salvation. They were brought out of slavery into freedom. And yet, they still turned their faith. And this shows us, this is the thing. It's what David Foster Wallace began with is how quickly we worship the wrong things. This is the principle of first and second things. We take second things and make them supreme things. And we lose the first thing, the main thing. It's, it's, the, it's the displaced affections that Augustine speaks of. And I, I think of the covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the everlasting promise in Genesis chapter 12 or to, to Abraham and his seed um, and all the families of the earth. The, the Davidic covenant, an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting throne, an everlasting king. The giving of the law, the services of God, the, the building of the temple, the promises that God gave to them. And yet in all of those things, they miss the main thing, the whole point of all of it in the rejection of Jesus. The Christ. Because look at what he says. He says, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And this is the source of Paul's heartbreak. The principle of the first and second things violated to the point of literally rejecting the Messiah. You see, Israel had become convinced that as the chosen people, election was about who is in and who is out. What's crazy is that there are many Christians that hold to that same view. It's about who's in and who's out. But Paul makes it clear that that's not the point. And the moment they made it about themselves, instead of being the conduits and the witnesses to the, to the living God, they became a people that became obsessed with the practices that made them uniquely Jewish, and they lost the very God of their worship in the midst of it. And I think that we do the same. We can turn our praxis immediately into our gods. We can immediately feel like we're good Christians because we read our Bibles, because we pray, because we tithe, because we do this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, that's what actually brings meaning to life. Because, listen, people want ritual. They want meaning. They want purpose. This is why religion is so dangerous, because it gets you so close to the truth, but you're actually further from it from, than anyone, because you can get so close to it that you can't see it. And that is the external practices of the Christian faith become the thing that defines you as a Christian rather than Christ himself intimately engaged in your life. And that's a terrifying thing, to be so close to the truth and yet so far from it. Isn't that why Lewis said the path to hell is a gradual one? George MacDonald said that a person can be sitting in a pew week after week and have become a demon over time without even knowing it. Because religion became the driving factor for their lives about being right. Part of truth-telling is recognizing that you're often wrong. <laughs> I don't trust anyone that thinks they've got it all figured out. I remember asking a very specific theologian, I won't, na won't name names, uh, um, Norman Geisler, um, and, uh, uh, and he said to me in a back room, Geisler is brilliant, and he wrote a lot of books, 
And I, I said, I said, so, um, Dr. Geisler, how, you know, how many passages um, in the Bible do you still struggle with that you don't that you don't understand? And I'd only been a believer for two years when I met him, and he goes, "There's only two verses," <laughs> and I was like, "Beep!" Like, I, there's no way. I'm like, I, I'm, I almost dropped an expletive on him. I'm like, "What?" Um, and and I'm like talk about hyperbolic, but he was dead serious. I would say that is not a trustworthy answer. I I think the longer you walk with Jesus and the more you investigate Scripture, the more you recognize that there is a lot of mystery. And you've got to squeeze things into a very, very particular box to make everything work in in a harmonious one, I have got the Bible figured out. Man, I don't know. And I like Dr. Geisler, but I was shocked by that statement. Um, And I think that that speaks to even the most godly people, those who have spent the most time gaining. The more we grow, actually, the more dangerous it can become for us to become proud in our knowledge. And I'm not saying he was being arrogant, but it's not true. It's It's not possible for that to be true. And so I think that the principle of first and second things is this, is understanding what must stay supreme. I, w- I want to share this quote, and it's actually from C.S. Lewis. And the principle of first and second things actually comes from an essay that he once wrote. And if you can't read it, if it's too small, um, you can just listen. I'm going to read it right now. It says, The longer I looked into it, the more I came to suspect that I was perceiving a universal law. The woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses, in the end, not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog-keeping. Lewis loved his dogs. The man who makes alcohol his chief good loses not only his job, but his palate and all power of enjoying the earlier and only pleasurable levels of intoxication. Lewis also loved his beer. Um, Of course, this law has been discovered before, but it will stand rediscovery. It may be stated as follows. Every preference of a small good to a great or partial good to a total good involves the loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice is made. Apparently, the world is made that way. Put first things first, and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first, and we lose both first and second things. We never get, say, even the sensual pleasure of food at its best when we are being greedy. (laughs) What a powerful statement. What is he saying? He's essentially saying, and I'll close with this. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, there's a famous scene of Jesus coming to the house of Mary and Martha. And Martha is busy serving. And Mary is sitting at the feet of Christ. And Martha becomes frustrated that Mary is sitting while she's serving. And, G- and it says this, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered the village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. In other words, 
Intimacy with Christ is the only thing that actually fuels proper service. The main thing, the first thing, actually allows her to enter into the second things. Martha's desire to put the second things first, the serving over the intimacy, causes her to be anxious, causes her to be frustrated, causes her to not function in the second principle, the substitutionary love. It causes her to avoid the first principle, the principle of truth-telling, because she is lying to herself in believing that my service is actually what makes me valuable. What she should have recognized is that it was Jesus' service on her behalf that makes her service valuable. It is intimacy with Jesus that brings us into the truth, and the truth reveals that on our worst day we are loved, and it reveals that the world around us is as fully loved as we are. And it is that substitutionary love, the laying down our lives for the for the good of those around us that brings us back to the first principle again and again, which is only Jesus can fuel our ability to love others. The goal is not arriving, it's knowing. The goal is not doing, it's living in Christ, with Christ, for Christ, for one another. The goal is surrender, not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. And it is the surrender to Jesus that gives the Spirit the power then to work in and through our lives magnificently. I love the gospel. And I know chapter 9 will push some buttons and challenge us at times, but I actually think these principles are universal principles. All scripture is God-breathed and valuable for our instruction to remind us again and again that everything that needs to be done has been done in Jesus. So make him first. Make him first. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you for its power to bring transformation into our lives. Lord, I know there are many in this room, like me, that can busy themselves with much activity because we're still trying to prove our worth, still performing for an audience that isn't even here, still trying to hold on to this idea that there must be something I must do to make myself worthy of God's affection and others' affection. But Lord, when we die with you, it frees us from the tyranny of the fear of man. It frees us from the tyranny of self-idolatry. And it allows us to enter into the peace that you offered so beautifully in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And Lord, forgive us for seeking peace, seeking meaning in things that break our hearts. As David Foster Wallace said, those things will never satisfy us. We can't worship our intellect without feeling dumb. We can't worship beauty without turning it into something that immediately becomes ugly. Lord, we can't worship our jobs without them then becoming toil. We can't even worship our spouses or our children 
without becoming suffocating. Only you can handle our worship. And we were created to worship you. And so I pray that as we come into the truth of who you are, that it would expose us in those areas where we're still believing lies and that we would speak them out to you and to one another, that we would be a people that are so infused with your divine love that we lay down our lives for the good of those around us because we know what it costs you to make us right with yourself. And Lord, that we would keep you the supreme thing. First things first. Only then can we enjoy the second things. Lord, let us not miss out on the best because we keep settling for the good. Lord, we need you. And so we give this time to you and we ask Jesus that you would make yourself known for anyone that doesn't know you in this room. I, I pray that they would just simply pray those words, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm lost. I need you. Come into my life. Make me your child. Lord, fill me with your spirit. Your word says that whoever confesses that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God is raised from the dead shall be saved. And so we say together as a church, making the first thing first, Jesus is Lord. Let's say that together, church. Jesus is Lord. Amen.